Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager here at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And this is the second part of our two-part series on the future of energy policy under President Donald Trump. Recently, we sat down with Kirk Johnson from NRECA and talked about some changes and um, priorities we're seeing at the federal level. And after that podcast, uh, I wanted to invite Craig and Tony back to discuss a little bit more about how those uh, initiatives might impact us here in Michigan. So we're going to delve deeper than what we did in that last podcast and talk about some Michigan-specific issues. Uh, As I already mentioned, joining me today are Tony Anderson, our general manager here at Cherryland. Hey, Tony. Good afternoon. Welcome back. And Craig Bohr, the CEO of the Michigan Electric Cooperative Association, or MECA. Hey, Craig. Good afternoon. Thank you for driving all the way here and joining us. You're very welcome. So, Craig, to, to get us going, first of all, can you just start by briefly explaining what Michigan's energy policy looks like today? We've kind of undergone some changes of state policy recently. Well, I, I think just to take a step back before I actually answer your question, I think uh, most of your listeners uh, have probably heard uh, that we did do an energy package at the end of last year. It was really the last item accomplished by the Michigan legislature. But historically, this is an issue meeting energy policy here in Michigan that we typically take on every decade or so. The last time we really took on a major energy reform package was in 2008. And that's really due to the fact that these issues are typically very complex. Uh, They impact really every citizen in our state in some way, shape, or form in terms of the economic uh, impacts, particularly of many of these reform packages. And also, and lastly, I would argue that term limits have really complicated this issue uh, by the fact that typically, again, every every two years, we turn over about a third of the Michigan House of Representatives, and that makes the learning curve very difficult for many of these new members, uh, well-intentioned men and women from throughout Michigan, but it really complicates the job of getting something complex done like energy, and energy is certainly a, a complex issue. Do you think we got to done in 2016? There, I've heard some rumblings that... They may open up the energy package. There's some choice issues. You think that'll happen, or that's just talk? I, I think uh, I think it may happen, particularly in the Michigan House of Representatives. Uh, Ch- uh, Chairman Gary Glenn from the Midland area, I know, is very interested, uh, particularly in focusing on the, the choice issue. Uh, he has uh, really allied with a number of the school districts throughout our state uh, to, to, to seek an expansion of choice, uh, particularly for those that are not currently in it. So I think, yeah, there's a good deal of dialogue already. Uh, He has proposed a very aggressive hearing schedule. He's going to have something like 40 or 45 uh, hearings of the committee, so effectively one a week for almost the entire year, including uh, during the summer months. And I think there's a reasonably good chance that the House will have a very robust dialogue and perhaps even do something here. The key then becomes, will the Senate do anything, and ultimately, will the governor's office sign on to any changes on energy policy? And I think it's it's way too early to, to say yes on those two fronts. Craig, in the um, podcast with Kirk, you, you mentioned the fact that as a state, we already have a renewable portfolio standard. We're kind of already doing some things that aren't mandated at the federal level. Um, and we've talked pretty extensively on our podcast about preparing to comply with the Clean Power Plan, and we know that there might be changes to that regulation under EPA Minister Scott Pruitt. So can you talk about how those might impact us or or won't they impact us since we're already kind of doing our own thing? Well, I think to some degree the the co-ops in our state are very well positioned or ready uh, for any potential changes. And what I mean by that is particularly those co-ops that are in Michigan's lower peninsula, Cherryland included, uh, are in a very good position from a fuel diversity standpoint. They don't have a a very strong reliance on coal. Coal uh, 
uh, has a role in that portfolio, but it's a rather small role around uh, um, a third or less as we go forward here. So that's something that I think uh, the co-ops in Cherryland with its power supplier, Wolverine Power Cooperative, have really planned for uh, changes uh, that could be contemplated in some sort of a, uh, a clean power plant. Uh, that being said, if that does not occur, those resources are still competitive, and Cherryland's members in particular will see the benefit of really just a newer, cleaner portfolio is maybe the easiest way to think of it on a go-forward basis. What about coal energy in the state of Michigan as a whole? We're still going to shut down the plants that are scheduled to be shut down. The Trump administration is not going to change that. Yeah, I think the reality of it is this. There are two reasons why our coal fleet uh, has seen a number of reti uh, retirements here in Michigan. One is there, many of those units are just flat old. Many of them were built in the 50s or 60s, uh, in some cases the 70s, but they're typically 50 to 70 years old. Secondly, many of those plants uh, have been or are being taken out of service really due to things other than CO2 and possible uh, economic impl implications of, of CO2. They're taken down from mercury or fine particulates or other matter that uh, have, have caused those facilities to be taken down by really other changes that have been implemented by the EPA under the Obama administration. How are they being replaced then? They really aren't yet at this point. Um, one of the things that was uh, really said uh, by many around the bill package at the end of the last year was they wanted certainty, and they wanted certainty in the marketplace here in Michigan before they would build. Well, uh, we've literally had one announcement uh, since that package was signed at the end of last year by Governor Snyder, and that was for a relatively small two-unit, uh, two-facility configuration in the UP by uh, really Wisconsin Electric Power Company and its new Michigan affiliate. I think we're hopeful and somewhat optimistic that uh, particularly the state's two large utilities, uh, Consumers Energy and Detroit Edison, will both uh, hopefully move forward with announcements here within the next several months in terms of new facilities that they will build in our state. And how big will those facilities be? Because we're shutting down 4,000 megawatts of coal. But from what I'm hearing, we're not building 4,000 megawatts of anything. No, I, I think our sense is uh, the amount of retirements will outweigh the amount of new generation, perhaps for the next several years. I think the other thing that uh, really your listeners and Cherryland members in particular need to keep in mind is much of that generation will not get built quickly. And again, the co-ops are in good stead here, so let's focus on the rest of Michigan. But I think clearly an optimistic view would say that many of these new uh, arguably gas-fired power plants will take a minimum of five years probably from announcement to completion uh, due to things like the permitting and uh, interconnection requirements through MISO and other things that simply take time, local zoning, et cetera. So uh, I think we're probably five to seven years away from some of these new gas-fired power plants uh, being uh, in operation here in our state. So we're going to be at the mercy of the market. We're going to be, the whole state of Michigan is going to be buying some power on the open market. To some degree. and that's Not necessarily the co-ops, but the investor-owned utilities. Right. To some degree, that's been the case for quite a while in terms of Michigan being a net uh, importer of electricity from, uh, from our bordering states, particularly to the south. 
So then for those utilities that are looking to build power plants, one of the other kind of interesting things going on at the same time is that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, um, which is the agency that approves and permits things like power plant projects, um, normally has five commissioners. Two Republicans retired at the end of their terms in 2015 and 2016 and weren't replaced, so they had three Democrats left and a Democrat just retires. So now they only have two, which means they don't have a quorum and therefore cannot act. How might one, how long do you think that's going to last, and what would be the impact on Michigan of that? Well, I'll take your second for, uh, question first. I uh, really don't have a sense of how long that will take to get a couple of two nominees uh, or multiple nominees through the Senate uh, confirmation process, but my, would get, my guess would be that can occur fairly quickly within the next several months. I think the, the second issue, and perhaps more importantly, is with respect to siting of power plants, FERC really has nominal authority. The permitting authority is really done here with the Michigan DEQ. Now, FERC would have some authority, particularly on uh, transmission used in interstate commerce, so high-voltage transmission lines and potential implications of things related to transmission and any new generation projects here in Michigan. And those things take a long time to build? Correct. So you kind of had to plan ahead? and have some certainty that you're going to get permits to do That's it. That's correct. I mean, the, the, these facilities are hundreds of millions of dollars, in some cases billions of dollars, uh, to, to, uh, to, to implement and construct. And simply working through the process of uh, local zoning and permitting through the MDEQ and other things takes time. So we have coal shutting down, natural gas uh, several years to build. Begs the question of what's the role of wind? Well, certainly wind has a role. Uh, I would argue it's a complementary role and one that we've seen uh, a good deal of uh, activity in over the last uh, almost 10 years now, since 2008 and, and the year that the actual renewable mandate came into place in Michigan. I think that's the, the thing that's a little disconcerting is really all of that or much of that activity has been in one fairly small geographic area in the thumb of Michigan. And... Uh, the disappointing part of that is we're beginning to see pushback uh, by local zoning boards and township boards on some of these new projects. And I think that uh, could be particularly problematic for uh, the wind industry in, our, in, in the state of Michigan. There's very little uh, in the Upper Peninsula. I believe there's only one wind project. And uh, there are two other fairly significant locations uh, uh, for wind here in Michigan, but certainly the thumb uh, was identified several years ago by a Blue Ribbon Committee that Governor Granholm put together as really the, the, uh, the, the, the best uh, region for, for wind and wind development uh, here in Michigan. As a part of that, uh, we and other states really through ITC uh, are funding about a billion and a half dollar transmission line that was built uh, and the cost being socialized across multiple states to really export wind not only to, to portions of Michigan that, that need it, but to portions of other states throughout the Midwest. The concern is the, the footprint of wind in the thumb right now is about a third of what was contemplated under that um, really massive transmission line that was built into the thumb. And I think uh, our, our concern long, long term is what does that mean if, if the thumb really uh, and the residents of the Thumb continue to push back on wind, where will that wind go and how much can we actually build here on a go-forward basis? Well, and there's, I mean, aside from recouping the investment and the way we'd socialize the cost of the transmission, there's also just the economic impact of the wind industry in Michigan, right? So um, I was looking some stuff up before the podcast, but there are 2,000 wind energy jobs in Michigan. Um, we're the fourth 
in the nation, for fourth state in the nation in terms of wind energy produ production. And clearly, I don't have numbers, but clearly wind developments are a tremendous tax boon to the counties they're located in. And to the extent that we don't continue to grow that, there's an economic impact of that. Certainly. And I think this was an issue that was identified in the, in the dialogue in 2008 as a part of the energy package in terms of what I would call local control issues. The whole issue of should we have a statewide zoning ordinance for wind was discussed very openly and uh, at times very combatively by many of the uh, participants, uh, most important of which is perhaps the Michigan Township Association which effectively said no with a capital N and a capital O. And I think that's really the case today. We contemplated, or the industry knew that this would become an issue at some point, and, and now it is. Where are the environmental groups on the statewide zoning or zoning of any kind? Are, are they in, in the wind fight at all in the state of Michigan? They're in the fight, but, but I don't think nearly as aggressively as they could be to really help um, um, the continued construction of wind. Uh, we look at some of the pro uh, projects and the thumb in particular, and uh, it would have been very helpful to have many of our uh, colleagues from various of the environmental groups in Michigan really be more aggressive on the need for more wind, particularly now when we have a mandate uh, as utilities that uh, our member utilities going from 10% to 15%, there will need to be more construction of wind. The one caveat in the bill package is it now allows utilities, uh, co-ops, and others to buy that wind from outside the state of Michigan, and that was not the case prior to uh, the package that we just completed at the end of last year. So what states would that wind come from? Well, it could come from a, a number of states. Uh, uh, typically, the Dakotas are very uh, good and wind-rich states. Uh, states like Iowa, Missouri, and others uh, are obviously uh, very, very good uh, wind regimes in those states. The thing that uh, again, makes it difficult is really moving that wind, the transmission component of it, if you will, and the fact that we really have no meaningful transmission tie between our two peninsulas, so that any of that wind that would be exported from uh, the plains or uh, the Midwest uh, needs to come through uh, a relatively limited interface uh, that is on the southern portion of the lower peninsula. So one more wind question. A lot of the wind development in Michigan and across the country has benefited from the production tax credit. What's the, what's the future of the tax incentives for wind? When you look at the kind of current Congress, what do you, what do you think is going to happen with those? I think they have a very limited uh, existence. The way the, uh, uh, the package uh, or the legislative or the statute is set up now is that they will phase out over time. Uh, we have not heard in our dialogue, particularly with the Michigan members, that there's a real great appetite for uh, tax credits for any type of renewable uh, initiatives over time. Uh, part of it is how do we pay for it, and part of it is geographic in terms of who are the beneficiaries of certain of these things. Uh, things like solar are typically those incentives go to people with fairly high disposable incomes. That's a difficult sell to sell that to a member of Congress. So I, I, I think longer term, I, I, I think their existence is probably uh, questionable. So one, the, I want to take a totally weird transition now. But, um, you know, we recently built Alpine. We're talking about getting rid of coal and, and moving more towards natural gas. One of the big things we've seen already under the Trump administration is um, permitting pipelines. And, you know, whether it's Dakota Access or Keystone, what does that mean for us? And how, how might that impact Michigan if we were to see those things come to fruition? Well, I think anything that, that helps pipeline infrastructure in our state is good. Uh, 
for example, let's take a look at the Upper Peninsula. There are a number of, uh, really one uh, generation project uh, in two locations that we talked about here earlier that is being uh, contemplated by Wisconsin, uh, um, Wisconsin organizations. One of the issues they have there is natural gas pipeline capacity. They, they don't have that at this point. They're going to have to build that. Anything that could either expedite or allow for greater capacity through certain of those pipelines, particularly in key portions of our state like the Upper Peninsula, I think would be met with uh, with open arms. Again, uh, one when one does that, one will run into a good deal of opposition in terms of uh, activist groups, uh, certain environmental groups, and really zo local zoning and uh, what I would call local issues in terms of the ability to to get some of those things from uh, discussion stage to to moving dirt. I was a, a part of a panel recently, and one of my fellow panelists, who is someone who is known in kind of the energy realm in Michigan said that he has credible research to show that there will be no new natural gas plants built after 2020. And if that's the case, we have no reason to build ways to transmit natural gas. What is your, he didn't show me the research, so I can't confirm it. But when we look, I mean, we're all in this energy hmm. industry. What do you think? I, I don't believe that statement. I think the individual you're talking about was in an energy advisory role under a democratic administration just uh, one or two administrations ago, not to mention any names. <laughs> and to say we won't build natural gas after 2020 is not realistic for me when you just simply do the math. 4,000 megawatts of coal being shut down. Tough to build wind. Solar's not going to do it. You know, that's thousands and thousands of acres of solar panels can't do it. So what are we going to do? If we're not going to import it from out of state, it's got to be natural gas unless somebody's going to build a big nuke plant. I don't see that happening. So just by process of elimination from my small brain says that's just an off-the-wall statement that I need more facts. Well, and even if you could... Build, even if you could build the solar and wind capacity, it wouldn't fix the intermittency issue of solar and wind, Absolutely. and we don't have another way to back it up. Natural mm -hmm. gas is a, is a good backup for intermittent yeah. The, yeah, the battery technology isn't there to 4,000 megawatts of battery, even if you had the solar and the wind to charge 4,000 megawatts of battery. The batteries are not there. The only thing that is there is an abundance of natural gas and the ability to build natural gas generation in a short period of time, that five to seven year range, which is long but relatively short for a, in the utility world. Yeah, particularly compared to a, a new coal or a nuclear plant, which uh, are really a whole different realm of permitting yeah. um, uh, complexity, I, I guess I would say. And I, I, I agree with Tony. I, I, I think uh, not only our state, but the entire country is in a good deal of trouble uh, if we're not able to build any natural gas. Uh, we may be in a good bit of, a bit of trouble even if we are. And the sure. reason, reason I say that is every time this industry sort of runs in mass uh, to one particular fuel, it's been proven wrong. We've seen that with nuclear power. We've seen that with coal. Um, and we saw it in the late 90s with, with natural gas and price spikes that brought natural gas to you know four to six times uh, the market price that it is today. And if that occurs... Uh, we'll have a, a halt on natural gas, whether we like it or not. Yeah, and hundreds of miles of transmission line are also difficult to build and take long periods of time. 
when you can site a natural gas plant within a reasonable geographic location of the load, it's just going to happen. And it's going to have to happen because we can't build coal. And one of the things that um, is interesting, if you're thinking of like coal versus natural gas, with coal, we had the ability to have a bunch of coal delivered and it's sitting in a pile at the plant. And I've got two, three, however many days worth of supply that I can access if I need it. Natural gas not, is not like that. It's, it's, it's real time. They have to be delivering it to me in the moment I need it. And, and for the most part, I'm not storing a bunch on site in order to use in my right. facility. Correct. So it, it really reiterates the importance of having a reliable way to transmit it at the capacity we need to to you know kind of feed our electric generation sources yeah so my last pipeline question and you probably know what, what i'm going to ask line five a lot of push here in michigan to get rid of that one what do you think will happen with it and if it if it does go away what are the implications for um kind of the, the natural gas distribution infrastructure in michigan well, I, first and foremost, I, obviously the, the politics of that are complex. It's my understanding that that pipeline carries a number of, of no, a number of things other than natural gas. So I don't know how much of an impact that will have on the natural gas uh, industry. I think the other thing that uh, helps us here in Michigan is we have the greatest uh, volume of storage capacity in our state of any state with respect to the ability to store natural gas. Uh, uh, and use it at a, at a later date. So uh, I think it's an issue. I, it's, it's an issue from the standpoint of sort of not in my backyard type of thing. And and obviously I realize there are issues there and concerns around uh, moving uh, fuels, uh, if you will, safely. Uh, that I think that's something that we all care about. But we also have to weigh that in terms of the ability to, to generate electricity and do other things that uh, keep our economy humming. I think we have too many instances of not in my backyard where we have to we have to come to the realization we have to live with what's already in our backyard. Line 5 is in our backyard. Do we have to regulate it? Do we have to inspect it? Do we have to insist on high standards of safety? Absolutely. But can we eliminate it? I I don't believe so. You know, go. we can't we can't build enough wind because people don't want it. I believe, going back to your 2020 statement, I believe by 2020 people will be tired of solar in Michigan because it will be taking up too many acres. Uh, so I'm more worried about the renewable, the ability to build renewables than I am about pipelines. You're right. I'd like to see some of that same energy and that vibrancy that, that various activist groups and others have on Pipeline Fide have that same level of uh, let's try to solve a problem so that we don't store nuclear fuel on the shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, to me, that's a much more immediate issue that really doesn't get a, a great deal of play in the news media and I would argue is every bit as dangerous, perhaps even much more dangerous, that uh, we have decades of nuclear fuel that's sitting, you know, feet from uh, one of the most pristine bodies of water in the United States. So we talked a little bit about um nuclear energy in the podcast with Kirk, what we talked about the kind of the small module, modular nuclear reactor technology and research and development in that area. Is, is there a play there for Michigan? Do we think that could be, because you, you, you said in that podcast, Craig, nobody's going to build a big nuclear plant. The, the two utilities who could aren't going to touch it. Will there be nuclear in Michigan ever again? 
I think perhaps, but I think part of the other issue that you're seeing here is the complexity of doing that. Uh, just because the unit is smaller, arguably you have less complexity, but you still have to site it, you still have to connect it to the grid, you still have to get over all the issues of not in my backyard, and, and how do we do that? And I think at, at that point in time, we'll also have many that are saying this is an improving technology and why should we move forward with it? So I, I think the complication of bringing any new technology to the marketplace is very, very, very difficult. I, I would have to agree with that. I very much support small-scale nuclear. I think it's the, the way to go in the future. But in the next 10 years, do I see it in Michigan? And I, I'd have to say no. And it, it always goes back to that not in my backyard, which leaves us left playing with what we have in our backyard. And that's natural gas. So, and yeah, and then that's kind of the takeaway at the yeah. end of this conversation, right? We've We've said it's not going to be coal. It's probably not going to be nuclear. It's wind is increasingly difficult to build, so we would love to see more. We can't we can't say with any certainty there will be. Mm -hmm. Solar has a, still a land mass problem, yeah. although there will be more solar. Right. Um, and then there's natural gas. And yep. behold, now you know the future of energy in Michigan. Yep, which puts all our eggs into one big, dangerous, volatile price basket, mm -hmm. which is scary. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. I think to some degree, obviously, things like demand response can help that uh, in, a, in, in some way in terms of that and energy efficiency programs and other things that sort of nibble around the edges, perhaps. Uh, and I, I think raising awareness in those issues and actually, you know, having some programs to address those are helpful. Uh, but I, I, I think they really don't get at the, the larger picture in that at some point we need to build supply in this state, period. Right, because the kind of demand response, energy efficiency, the idea there is that we, the, you know, the cheapest kilowatt hour is the one you don't use, right? Can we save our way out of this problem? And the answer is we can save, but we can't save our way out of this problem. Right. Yeah, and demand response is something we're going to take a hard look at at Cherryland in 2017. It's something we haven't been good at in the past. We need to get better at. And so that's one of our primary focuses in 2017 is to get better at demand response and saving some of those kilowatt hours that we don't have to generate. So we're, we're coming up on 30 minutes. Does anybody have any anything else we wanted to talk about after the podcast with Kirk, or are we? No, you, we you, got, us, you got us to line five. We could have quit before line five <laughs> and saved a little bit of controversy, but got that one in under the wire, so we're, we're probably good today. You're welcome for that. <laughs> okay, so uh, as always, we will be ending today's podcast with co-op fun facts. Tony, kick us off. Michigan Country Lines is the magazine that goes out to 250,000-some uh, cooperative members across the state, including Cherryland members. There are 32 statewide member magazines like Michigan Country Lines in circulation that serve 12 million people every month. And the surveys still indicate that people want that paper in their hand. We're not ready to go digital anytime soon with the member co-op magazine. Although I would add, if you do like to read it digitally, you can read all of Cherryland's content on our blog at cherrylandelectric.coop forward slash blog. Thanks for that softball, Tony. There you go. <laughs> Craig, your fun fact? Michigan's electric co-ops pay uh, approximately $15 million a year in property taxes, and that number will be going up substantially uh, this year with the addition of Wolverine Power Cooperative's uh, Alpine Power Plant, a roughly $200 million investment uh, in Otsego County, Michigan, near Gaylord, which will vault Wolverine into becoming the uh, number one taxpayer in Otsego County. 
So mine is kind of a playoff of the fun fact I did at the end of our podcast with Kirk, except for this one I want to talk about the Michigan Electric Cooperative Association. They're turning 39 this year, and that means they have operated under seven U.S. presidents and five Michigan governors, starting with Governor Milliken, who was from right here in Traverse City. Very good. So thanks for getting together with me and talking about how some of this stuff might affect us here in Michigan. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.